Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we visit a church service where Colorado's Ukrainian community is showing support and resolve. We will survive because we always do. We haven't been extinguished yet. And we examine Colorado's move to add a public option insurance program and what lessons we can take away from Washington's public option rollout. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Colorado is showing support for the people of Ukraine. The state capitol will be lit in blue and yellow this week, the colors of the Ukrainian flag. And Governor Jared Polis recently wrote a letter to the U.S. State Department to inform them that Colorado is ready to welcome refugees. The local Ukrainian community is also standing in solidarity with their families and friends back home. I visited a church in northwest Denver yesterday, along with Colorado Edition's Tess Novotny, to hear from some of the people there. It's Sunday morning at Transfiguration of Our Lord Ukrainian Catholic Church in Denver. Families take their places in the sturdy wooden pews, while moms and dads hush rambunctious little ones in their native language. The 10.30 service in Ukrainian has just begun. There are about 11,000 people of Ukrainian descent living in Colorado, according to recent census data. Some have found community with each other in the church. Today and on recent Sundays, congregants have been praying for their country and loved ones back home. Whether they emigrated from Ukraine themselves or were born in the United States, they shared the same concern over the future of their homeland. I'm Tulosia Fedak, and I live in Wheatridge, Colorado. She's been coming to the church for 50 years since moving to Colorado in 1972. I was a child when the war started, and after the war, we came to the state as immigrants. So it hurts, you know, it really almost makes me sick to see what's happening, to what the world is letting Putin do. I don't know, it's almost like asking for a miracle that Putin backs off. My name is Stefan Cruz, but it's actually Krushelnitsky. I live in Lakewood. My father is from Western Ukraine. My mom is from Buenos Aires, Argentina. However, her parents were from Ukraine, and they immigrated during the times of the Soviet Revolution and World War I. So that gives you an idea how how scattered the Ukrainian people are because of revolutions, wars, and other atrocities, if you will. Stefan has been coming to the Ukrainian Catholic Church his entire life. I was baptized here. He says he's hoping for more support from the international community, especially given that he still has friends and family in Ukraine. As for my friends in Kyiv and Ivano-Frankivsk, they are under attack, but they're still doing okay. As for my family, I have not been able to get a hold of them. Uh, 
Uh, it's Oiled Le Boja Kuzma. I live in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Is this your normal church? Yes. Yes. You make a little bit of a drive. Yes, I do. I think that uh, as a collective people on this planet, we're watching innocent people being slaughtered. But it's something that my people, the Ukrainians, have experienced for over a thousand years. We will survive because we always do. We haven't been extinguished yet. Olya has family living in Ukraine now. And although she doesn't use a cell phone, she keeps in contact with them through other family members. They are... Um, some of them are in uh, bomb shelters and in um, um, basements of buildings and uh, waiting it out. She says it will take a combination of military, political, and spiritual will to get through the crisis. I have to believe what my faith uh, tells me to believe. God didn't give us independence in 1991 and restore our churches that were in the catacombs to take that away from us again. I have to believe that God has his hand in all of this. And as we read in the Holy Scriptures that he gave victory to the underdog and he will bless us and restore us. I'm Father Valery Kanduk. Uh, I move a uh, couple months. Uh, I'm start celebrate this uh, in September uh, 2021 years. Could you talk about the message to your congregation today? Я так зрозумів, що я сьогодні говорив до людей, так? За піст, за молитву, за прощення. Okay. So help help to Ukraine, Lent, and forgiveness. That's Inya Saldit, translating for Father Valeri. I ask him if he has family in Ukraine that he's worried about. So, so he has a large family in, in Ukraine. They live in the south in Mykolaivska Oblast. Right now, they're in the midst of a battle. The message is that God will help them and protect them. Inia, or Johanna, as her American friends call her, lives in Denver and is president of the Denver chapter of the Ukrainian National Women's League. She isn't a regular at Transfiguration of Our Lord Church, but she's here for the sense of community with the people here. I'm Ukrainian. I've, I'm, my parents came from Ukraine. They were immigrants after World War II, actually refugees. I've uh, been Ukrainian my entire life, and um, I'm born American, but my heart is Ukrainian. Johanna tells me she's grateful for the support from Colorado's congressional delegation and from Governor Jared Polis, who last Thursday announced that Colorado stands ready to welcome refugees and provide support to those fleeing Ukraine. She wipes away a few tears as she describes the crush of emotions she's feeling. I'm, I'm heartbroken. I'm sad. I'm proud. I'm so proud of of the president Zelensky, 
I, you know, it, it's, he's, I've watched the videos that he's put out and it brings me to tears. And so proud of my family and the Ukrainians here and everyone coming together. And, you know, we, we've been rallying. There have been rallies all over the world. And actually, I, I'm trying to communicate to my family in Ukraine that the whole world is supporting them, the people of the world. My name is Irina Lubianetka and I live in Lakewood, Colorado. Irina has attended the church for more than 20 years, around the time she moved to America. She is seeing Ukrainians in and outside of the country stepping up to support the resistance against Russia. Ukrainian people are so feisty, they're not going to let Putin rule the Ukraine ever. So a lot of people like signing up and going, volunteering, and so they do have stuff under control, but it is still a lot of chaos because it's, you know, unveiling, unveiling so fast. Irina has been in touch with her mother-in-law, cousins, and friends in Ukraine who can't always reveal where they are because of safety concerns. The only thing I'm asking them every day, how are you guys? How are you guys? Do you need any help? How can we help if you need anything other than whatever we have done so far? And they said they are scared, but they are ready to fight and they praying to God to help them. The Ukrainian language service ends with members of the congregation standing and raising their voices together in a final hymn. Here's Irina describing the message. We sing this song like, God, please help Ukraine and protect us. After liturgy, we sing the same song and just like a hymn to Ukraine and just asking God to protect Ukraine. You can see photos and video from the church at our website, KUNC.org. And you're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. In the ongoing quest to lower the cost of health care and make health insurance more affordable, some advocates are pushing for what's known as the public option, a plan that's designed by government and made available alongside private health care plans. A handful of states, including Colorado, are working to create their own public option plans in the coming months. And they may look for guidance from the state of Washington, which rolled out its own public option in 2020. Mark Ian Haraluk is senior Colorado correspondent for Kaiser Health News. He's written about Washington's experience and lessons from their rollout that other states can draw from. Mark Ian, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Erin. It can get a little confusing to differentiate between the different types of health insurance options. Would you briefly explain what a public option is and how it's different from the typical employer-based insurance plan? Sure, Aaron. Uh, public options, you know, can take many forms. Actually, it's but but the crux of the idea is that rather than having you know a private insurance company uh, offering health insurance uh, to consumers, you might have a plan that is designed, created, backed by the the government, whether that's the federal government or the state government, uh, or even local government for that matter, um, and. Um, and then that plan could compete against private insurance. And, and the hope of public option proponents is that um, without having to uh, deal with things like corporate profit or you know, high administrative costs, 
um, you might be able to lower premiums and that the government entity who is offering this plan might have a little bit more power to lower the prices that they pay to hospitals and doctors. And all of that, the theory goes, should save money for consumers. Okay. Now, the public option at a national level, hasn't really been able to gain gain traction. So some states have kind of picked up the baton and they're running with it. Colorado is one of them. Um, They're expecting to launch a plan next year, and we'll talk more about that later. But I want to talk about Washington uh, because they were one of the first states they rolled out two years ago, got off to a bit of a rocky start. What are some of the, the challenges they've run into? Yeah, so Washington did launch, uh, they're, they're now in their second year of, of the public option plan, and they uh, they have sort of a, a, a unique model, which, um, you know, we can talk a little bit later about uh, how, how it differs from, from what other states are doing, but theirs is a public-private partnership. So rather than the government offering the plan, uh, they have created sort of a standard benefit design and asked insurance companies in the state to offer this plan um, on the uh, healthcare insurance exchanges, where you know anybody who's buying insurance for their set for themselves or their family could buy it, often with a subsidy uh, from from the federal government to do so. Um, unfortunately, the, the the trouble they they've run into is that uh, the hospitals and doctors aren't really thrilled about uh, getting paid less than they might be paid by commercial insurance. So they've been somewhat reluctant to to sign up um, for for these uh, public option plans. And so uh, there's only a a certain number of counties within the state of Washington in which public options were offered in uh, 2020 and in 2021 for the uh, 21 and 22 um, years. Well, And it's sort of understandable that hospitals may not want to join voluntarily because they're being reimbursed at lower rates. How is Washington getting them on board? Well, uh, the shorter answer is they're, they're going to force them to. Uh, the the legislature came back. The legislature in Washington State came back and said, um, you know, if if we don't get hospitals signing up for plans such that we have a plan in every county. Uh, next year, we're going to force um, hospitals to participate. And uh, that didn't happen in, in for 2022. So for 2023, if hospitals don't want to participate voluntarily, they will be forced to participate with at least one plan in, in their county. Okay. What about the perspective of hospitals, though? I mean, do they have a point that the financial challenges are just too much? And I'm really thinking of hospitals in rural areas uh, that often operate, you know, with much smaller margins. Yeah, I mean, there is an argument to, to say that if you if you cut hospital rates, um, that uh, hospitals will have to cut back on the services they provide or, or staff uh, with, with fewer nurses or something of that sort. And we know that staffing has been a challenge during the pandemic. So, so there is a, you know, a concern of, okay, let's, let's not take um, a, a, an important player in our state and um, undercut their ability to provide good quality of care. However, in Washington state, it wasn't really the rural areas that uh, didn't see hospitals per, uh, sign up. It was mostly in the larger areas with uh, you know a lot of high cost hospitals uh, that were competing with each other. Um, that's where hospitals, the large hospital systems in particular, didn't really want to play ball. 
Um, so that's uh, that's why the legislature decided to step in and say, well, we're, we're going to use a bit more of a stick than a carrot approach on this one. We're talking with Mark Ian Haraluk, senior Colorado correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Where is Colorado now in the process of getting the public option ready to roll out for next year? Yeah, so the, the public option bill passed the legislature last year. It went through a couple of iterations. As you know, again, here in Colorado, hospitals and doctors pushed back on um, you know, what they thought were probably going to be some, some pretty deep cuts to their rates. Uh, so they're now in the implementation phase. Um, the regulatory agencies have have sort of started to hold stakeholder groups and write the rules around the public option. And they're going to have to come up with a standard design for the public option plan, which will determine, okay, how much are premiums going to be? How much is the deductible going to be? Things of that sort. And then they, um, they will pass this on to the insurance companies, which must then um, sign up their network of providers as hospitals, doctors, things of that sort. And if the insurance companies can't achieve savings, can't lower those premiums um, uh, by 5% per year over the next three years, Colorado has the ability as a state to step in and say, okay, we're going to take a more active approach with this and, um, uh, and basically tell hospitals and, and, and physicians what they're going to have to accept. And what lessons or guidance is Colorado taking from states like Washington that have already, you know, jumped in to do this? Yeah, yeah. Washington was the first. So, so all eyes have been on Washington, and Colorado has been watching what's happened in Washington uh, as they've been developing their public option plan. Um, so, some of the mistakes, you know, in terms of uh, having to Washington having to force hospitals to participate. There are some provisions within the, the Colorado public option plan that give the state a little bit more authority in that realm so they don't kind of get get stuck in that same situation. The difference in Colorado is really that, um, you know, during the negotiations, you know, hospitals uh, and insurance companies kept telling lawmakers that, you know, don't don't impose this on us we know how to cut costs. We can get these, these premiums lower. We can get patients out of pocket costs lower. Uh, and the state sort of, you know, lawmakers called them on it and said, okay, if you can do it, here you go. You've got three years to do it and let's see. Uh, and, and we'll see how that plays out. If, if they can't do it, then, um, then the state has the ability to go in and, um, and be a little bit more prescriptive about how the public option will work in the future. And it sounds like some lessons learned, too, is that it's really important to have, you know, the support of lawmakers and especially a governor in this fight. Is that how does that factor in with Colorado? Absolutely. I mean, I don't I don't think we would be even discussing a public option in in Colorado if, if the governor wasn't on board. Same in Washington, same in Nevada, which is the, the third state that now has has passed and is trying to implement its public option. Um, you know, leadership from, from the top is is hugely important. Uh, that hasn't played out so much on the federal level where, um, you know, both Obama and uh, and Biden were very supportive of public option. You know, Biden campaigned on the concept of a public option rather than Medicare for all. Uh, but, you know, once he got into office, the, the political realities in Congress were such that, that he couldn't push it through. So uh, on the federal level, they're, they're fo focusing more on reforms to, to the ACA, the Affordable Care Act or, or Obamacare, um, and public option remains, you know, maybe a hope for the future. 
just a bit elusive. Um, yes. Well, I just want to zoom out for a second because uh, most people agree we need to cut healthcare costs. It's just too much. And in the U.S., we pay a lot and the results aren't that always that spectacular. But it's been really difficult for states to try to pass universal health care or single payer uh, like Medicare for all, um, even in very blue states. Do you see Colorado trying again to do something like passing single payer health care? I, I wouldn't be surprised if they do down the road, but but I think the approach that I see in Colorado is to, to do more of this piecemeal. Uh, to keep chipping away at the number of uninsured through through different means, um, and, you know, right now there's going to be a lot of focus on um, one getting the the people who are already eligible for some sort of healthcare coverage, but either don't know or haven't been able to sign up um, to get those people covered. There's there's talk about expanding to uh, other groups of uninsured that that currently aren't eligible for federal subsidies, such as uh, the undocumented group. Um, you, you, as, you, as you keep sort of adding on these additional layers of coverage, you get pretty close to universal universal coverage. So they're, they're clearly, you know, proponents of, of a single payer would say there are advantages of a single payer program um, that we don't get by taking this piecemeal approach. But I think the initial goal is let's get everybody covered at least and then see what can we do further? How can we further improve our, our healthcare system in Colorado? Mark Ian Harluck is senior Colorado correspondent with Kaiser Health News. You will find this story and others at KUNC.org. Mark Ian, thank you so much. Thanks, Aaron. Always a pleasure. Cowboys played a crucial role in settling the West and establishing Western American culture. But you may not know that as many as one in three cowboys were black. Back in February of last year, Colorado Editions' Tess Novotny wanted to know more about the history of black cowboys in Colorado. She spoke with Elise Clark, a historian who volunteers at the Black American West Museum in Denver. To be honest, I don't actually know what the term cowboy means or where it came from. Can you explain? Cowboy refers to herdsmen, and herdsmen have existed, as we know, for thousands of years. And the name cowboy was first seen in print by Jonathan Swift in the 1700s. I laugh and we tease that the Western cowboy was a separate word, cowboy. We now use it as a compound word, but I always laugh and say, you know, the cowboys were black because they called them boy. But cowboys are people who are herdsmen. Their whole job is to take care of, of the cattle and the horses. What drew so many Black people to becoming cowboys? When they were enslaved, that was part of their job, was to take care of the animals, the horses. Some of your earliest trainers of thoroughbreds and other horses were people of African descent. They come from an actual horse culture in Africa. And so it was a natural transition for them to go from their enslaved job to their free job, which gave them more opportunity to see things. And they had a freedom on the open plain that you couldn't get picking cotton on a plantation. One of the main things cowboys did in the late 1800s was organize cattle drives. 
This is where cowboys actually walked cows thousands of miles from the south to many places across the west, including Colorado. How did black cowboys participate in these drives? You had many of these cowboys. You had people like Nat Love, who left Tennessee and walked to Dodge City to become a cowboy. You have other cowboys who went as far as Canada. Some were all black outfits and some were integrated outfits. But they all moved the cattle anywhere from a thousand to three or more thousand miles to get them to the railheads so they can get to market. Were black cowboys accepted at that time or did they experience discrimination? In America, discrimination is woven into the fabric of who we are. And so, yes, they did experience that. But one thing about being a cowboy that these men were able to do was to prove their trustworthiness, and their skill. Before they were property, now they could prove themselves as men. And I think that's the one thing about the West. Survival was the most important piece in the West. You could die quickly for no food, no water. Racism didn't really fit well with surviving. If someone was Black and they had a cup of water, if you were really that prejudiced that you wouldn't drink from their cup, then you would you know, be white bones on the, on the plains. After the railroad was invented at the turn of the 20th century, there was no longer a need for cattle drives. People could just ship their cows out west or wherever they needed on the train. How did life for black cowboys change at that time? There are still small cattle drives. And you don't see them, no, on the level that they were in the 1800s. No, you don't see it like that. But people still have to move their cattle. But how it's changed is that now our horse cultures are smaller. 70 years ago, we were a much more rural country. More people lived on farms. And as people moved to the city, That land was lost, and that land is lost that we can't get back now. Elise Clark is a historian who volunteers at the Black American West Museum. Elise, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll examine this year's snowpack in the Rockies and how our understanding of snow totals is changing. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Digital editing is handled by Ashley Jeffcoat and Jackie High. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.